Hello and welcome to another episode of the Health Academy Facebook live stream. I'm joined here with Neil and we've got another special guest who will be joining us a little bit later. Okay, so today we, Neil and I, would like to kind of share some of our experiences of traveling in um, Nepal and being at high altitude in the Everest region. Um, Neil and I have both had a little bit of time hanging out there, a beautiful part of the world. We loved it a lot. I'll maybe start with Neil to tell us a little bit of a story of exactly what went on when you were in Nepal, Neil. Thank you, Ewan. Um, so, yeah, so 2012 was when I was in Nepal. I went to Nepal straight after uh, a trip round India and I met with one of my friends who had already done the, the, the Khumbu region, which is where Everest is um, previously and traveled there previously. So we we flew out there and I hopefully some of you got to see the, the little video clip of the flight into Lukla. I've never seen a video so far that has done that little airport justice. Have you, Ewan, at all? It, no, it's an absolute crazy place. Uh, the amount of planes they get in and out of this crazy landing strip on the side of a mountain. It's, yeah, one of the most dangerous places I've seen. And I think it is statistically the most dangerous airport in the world or one of them anyway. I think it's up there. Yeah, I think it's up there. Certainly Ryanair and EasyJet could learn a few things around the turnaround times that they have for, for <laughs> airstrip. Uh, but yeah, certainly... Uh, Everyone had spoken about how scary that little flight in is. I actually loved the flight in. It was the flight out of there. We were one of the last flights out. They only fly really in the morning because it gets too rough. But the flight out was pretty scary out of there because ultimately you go down that hill and you just basically, hopefully by the end, there's an uplift. And obviously in most cases there is. And you're off into the, this beautiful region. But anyway, yeah, so... I did my trip to Everest Base Camp in 2012 and I took the slightly longer route up to what is a place called Gokio Lakes, which is beautiful, beautiful scenery, it's the highest lakes in the world. So the trip itself from the point of landing at Lukla to getting back to Lukla was scheduled to take 15 days was our, was our schedule it ended up taking 17 days in the end uh, to do that now I'd never really trekked at any level of altitude like this in the past it was my first time at that level of altitude I'd been into mountains but never to, to the extent of, of traveling like this I never grasped how remote it is I mentioned the airplanes there they only take off the airplanes during set times if the weather's too rough that's it. The, the airport is shut down. So you can't get in or out of Lukla. Similarly, the the helicopters, they can fly up there. But one of the things, and I don't know about you, Ewan, but at multiple points along the route to Everest Base Camp, you've got wreckages of, of uh, the helicopter wreckages. So ultimately getting out of that region in a medical emergency, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later on, can be a significant challenge. So ultimately, if you become sick, in that environment or any environment in in high altitude whether it's Everest base camp route or whether you're out in somewhere else in the Himalayas or or in South America for example getting out is always one of those things that you have to really consider and so you want to really reduce the risk of getting sick while you're there 
having never traveled at altitude, I didn't really know if I would be susceptible to altitude sickness. And a couple of days in, on the way up to Namchade Bazaar, so I think you've just got your map up there. So in between, just above the little red dot in the middle, so where Lukla is, uh, you've got Namchade Bazaar. Namchade Bazaar is about 3,400 meters. I started, was walking along, and I just started to become very dizzy. And I didn't really want to walk on anymore. I just suddenly felt very nauseous, felt very sick. So the Sherpas that were with us, the Sherpa uh, who, who were with us, uh, taking us on the route, they were advising, what do you reckon you and they advised? Go on, tell me. Garlic soup was the, the cure for, for my uh, what appeared to be apparent altitude sickness coming on. Of course. I, I hadn't been taking any medication for it at this point. At that point, I did have some with me. So I started taking Diamox, which when we when our special guest comes on later, we'll talk a bit more about Diamox. I, the, the fortunate thing was in Namche Bazaar, it's a natural place where a lot of trekkers, Namche Bazaar is a really, really odd little place because it's got a market. It's got this whole town going on on the middle of this mountain. And you've got an Irish pub there. You've got a very, very weird mix um, going on in Namche Bazaar. Fortunately, it was a place where we were allowed to stop for a few couple of days and we planned to stop for a couple of days for acclimatization. So I was started taking my Diamox. I started to acclimatize. And for me, I never suffered with the, the typical signs and symptoms of altitude sickness again during that trip. One of the things that I did suffer with was my appetite was gone completely during the whole time. So they were quite long and quite energetic days. And so when you're not eating, that starts to become a significant problem. We got to a point on our trek uh, on your map. So it's probably where if you look at where the... Uh, sort of Amadablum. You can see Amadablum, which is one of the other the other peaks um, on the map. That sort of area. We had news from the group ahead of us that uh, on the same trip as us that um, one of the trekkers going to Everest Base Camp had sadly passed away from altitude sickness uh, the day ahead of us on that trek trick trek. And I think it really starts to put it into perspective because. I never, before I did it, thought, oh, Everest Base Camp, it's not that high. It's not that high. I'll be okay. It's it's okay. It's, it'll be fine. Now, the guy that that, that died, he, he had had symptoms, but he'd, he'd, he'd tried to play them down to his, to the people that he, he was with. And ultimately, they couldn't get him back down quick enough to to be able to, for him to recover. And sadly, he passed away. Uh, I don't believe he was that much older than I was at the time. Um, and it really does start to put, put it into perspective um, that the the dangers uh, associated with it. Um, how about you? What about with your experience, Ewan? So uh, just to give you a quick bit of my story. Um, so if you see on the map here, um, there's this place called Dosa. So basically I had had to escape from India. Um, that's a whole nother episode perhaps when me and Neil will talk about how relaxing and calming we found India. Then anyway, <laughs> I escaped to Nepal and uh, I went to work for a, a little charity called Rural Access Nepal, run by a great woman called Marianne Herridge, uh, who's based in Kathmandu. 
And uh, all this part of the world on the map here is there's no roads at all here. So people tend nowadays to fly into Lukla to go up to Everest Base Camp. But prior to that, you had to go on a 12 hour bus journey and then walk from Jiri, um, which is down bottom left of the screen here. And you'd walk all the way to Namchi Bazaar and then onwards up to Everest Base Camp. Now, I we decided to get um, and we had a, a, a guide with us. We, we got the bus all the way to Jiri and then we were walking to this place called Dosa where we were going to work. So we started walking and it took four days to walk from Jiri to Dosa where we volunteered and worked in a clinic. Don't think we helped that many people, to be honest. But, you know, a few of us came to see us or perhaps just to queue up and see what the crazy white man was had to say to them and white woman um so we we worked there for a little while and then we went on a brief intermission from working in that clinic to everest base camp and back so we walked back up to join the jury route went past lukla up to namche and all the way up to uh Gorakshep and everest base camp and back and that was a a walk which took us um about 14 days but yeah about two weeks um we got lost a couple of times between the Jiri route and Dosa and ended up staying in some random people's houses in their living rooms and stuff, um, which was quite exciting. But during that time, the only time on that trip I actually did get a bit of altitude sickness was after I had stupidly exerted myself too much the day before. So we got up to Gorak Shep. We decided... Um, my wife had decided she was going to climb up this uh, Kalapatar the next day and that she actually had got this far but couldn't really be bothered going all the way to Everest Base Camp. She's just not necessarily motivated in that way. Kalapatar has got some quite nice views and it's um, very close to there. Um, whilst she was relaxing, as you should do, and resting, I decided to jog up to Everest Base Camp and back which the next day proved to be very kind of silly idea. I was getting headaches through the night. And then I, the next day, trying to climb up Kalapatar was um, very much a struggle. Um, after that, we, we flew back, no flew back, we ran back virtually because going downhill is much, much easier. And we'd done a lot of walking by that time, all the way back to Dosa to work at the clinic again, and then eventually flew out from a, a local um, landing strip. After that, and later date, a couple of weeks later, I flew back to Lukla and climbed Mera Peak, which is up here, just up the back of Lukla, as you might say. Mm -hmm. And that was another two-week trip. So that's a mountain just over 6,000 metres. And again, the only time I got altitude sickness was the day after a rest day when I should have been resting. And in fact, I was uh, kind of doing silly things like climbing up little bits of mountains and things. So that was pretty much uh, my experience um, going there. So I think um, we should probably, uh, you know, introduce an expert on the subject because here we are with two uh, amateurs um, talking about what happened to us and what we did wrong. And of course, uh, we're going to bring someone on. So I'm sure you're all aware of James Moore. Um, I'll give you a brief bit of history I've managed to find out from his Wikipedia page. Not really. Um, after a brief successful career as an emergency department matron and emergency nurse practitioner here in the UK and overseas, 
Jim left the NHS to combine previous training and ex experience to open the Exeter and Barnstable Travel Clinics, which are now recognised as outstanding by the CQC and support a wide range of local companies, individuals and educational establishments. In conjunction with Dr John Dallimore, five years ago, James co-wrote and launched the UK's first postgraduate diploma in expedition wilderness medicine. Um, it was based uh, on the BMJ award-winning Oxford Handbook of Expedition and Wilderness Medicine, which is a great resource if you're ever uh, going anywhere remote. I've used it and mine's all worn out actually from how much I've used it. Um, and James is a co-editor for that. With a home in the Faculty of Travel Medicine at the Royal College, uh, the diploma attracts doctors, nurses and pharmacy uh, and paramedics from across the globe. Following the successful completion of a master's degree in global health, James has been involved in several overseas projects delivering healthcare education in low to middle income countries. Further to this, he continues to write articles, both uh, research and educational. As well as running the clinics um, and the diploma, James teaches pre-hospital minor injury and illness to medics and non-medics alike, both in the UK and overseas. This work is frequently updated as he continues to provide on-site healthcare on expeditions across the globe for organisations such as the BBC Natural History Department, National Geographic, private companies, schools and charities. As a fellow of the Faculty of Travel Medicine, that's at the Royal College in Glasgow, James sits on the executive committee representing the International Diploma. He's a fellow and member of the medical cell of the Royal Geographical Society, former secretary of the British Global and Travel Health Association and consults for a number of expedition companies across the UK. When he's not working, as if there was any time in there, James enjoys an outdoor life in Devon where he shares his passion for surfing, wild camping, off-road driving and generally anything non-ordinary with his exhausted family. Needless to say, COVID-19 has been an amazing opportunity to catch up with some sleep. So we shall now unmute his mic and bring him on to the screen with us. Let me put it on like that. Hello, James. Hi, and guys. Hi James. Very exhausted Hi. just reading that, James. Uh, <laughs> and it makes me feel like inadequate. Yeah. <laughs> I've been too busy doing stuff, but nothing not being set up. <laughs> so um, how are you doing? Is that you in your clinic today? No, I'm at home, been working from home uh, since uh, lockdown, really. Um, the clinic, um, so both clinics have, have furloughed all the staff um, and the clinics have been mothballed. We do see occasional patients. We're still open for um, key workers, uh, essential workers. We, we do a little bit of occupational health um, and we're keen to make sure that those guys uh, can get their occupational health vaccine so they can get back into the NHS, although it's very few and far between. We, um, there are still a couple of people who are traveling, um, which is interesting, uh, mainly through work though. So it's occupational work travel uh, and it's often armed forces um, or governmental work, but that's, you know, one, one a month, if that. So there's virtually nothing happening in the world of travel medicine and provision of travel medicine at the moment uh, here in the UK. So it's all very quiet, all very interesting um, because uh, the travel, we don't know when travel is likely to take off again. A lot of the discussions in the background suggest that probably international travel isn't going to return as it ever was. 
Um, and certainly it isn't going to change for the next 12 months, I would think. There, there may be some levels of travel, but I think the, the time for maybe two-week trips to Thailand and all of that kind of holiday, they may might be over for a long time. And the schools expedition community, I work a lot with schools going overseas. I can't see that taking off again in any way, shape or form as it has been purely from a financial perspective. I think a lot of the travel in the future, looking at what the airlines have suggested is going to be unaffordable for many people uh, whilst the airlines try and survive. So it's all pretty quiet here in Devon. Um, but Devon's a wonderful place to live and the sun's shining. Um, You're managing to get out a bit, have you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We go out every day for a walk around the fields. We live in a just outside Exeter. We're blessed with an amazing countryside around here. Um, I've probably done more exercise since lockdown, than, <laughs> which isn't a lot granted. But, uh, <laughs> but we've been out running around um, and... Uh, and now we're allowed to go to the coast, so we're not that far from the beach. So we can, we're as of today, Wednesday, thanks to Boris, he said we're allowed to uh, drive to the beach. So it means that we can go surfing again, which is which is great. My son is climbing the walls, wanting to get back in the sea. So that will be the probably the PE lesson. We're we're home educating our kids, so uh, PE next week maybe surfing. Oh, I realised I've got the banner on that says that we're going to be uh, going live and we're already live, so I can hide that banner now. Um, so, James, you did you manage to hear our kind of brief rambles about some of the uh, tame stuff that we've done in Nepal? Yeah, I did. It was good. Yeah. So it's standard, standard tourism in Nepal. Yeah, so... Um, we're interested to know kind of your opinion on a, a bit about that and... Um, I believe in your clinic you've been uh, administering uh, Diamox for travellers. So kind of wouldn't mind talking a little bit about Diamox in terms of, um, you know, what you administer, what's the safety profile in your opinion of Diamox. And also, yeah, obviously I was a bit silly to exert myself so much and uh, kind of talking about advice you give to, um, to travellers about altitude. Yeah, okay. Um, so in terms of what you experienced, it's not uncommon. Uh, th those are probably the most uh, common signs uh, and symptoms of being at altitude. And one of the biggest things we talk about in the clinic, certainly with my patients or clients, is the, the need to acclimatise and the need to approach this sensibly. There's, there's nothing that they can do really other than acclimatise slowly and carefully to prevent... Uh, acute mountain sickness and certainly the more severe forms and um, Neil your example of I think it was Neil you said about the, the person who was very sick or dying on yeah. in that story uh, is not uncommon uh, at all and the estimates there are unofficial estimates of perhaps one person a month dying on Kilimanjaro going up there and the unofficial unofficial uh, estimates are probably higher than that and James, do you think that because Kilimanjaro, um, I've not I've not climbed Kilimanjaro myself, but I understand it's quite a rapid ascent, isn't it? Generally, up Kilimanjaro compared to to the Everest Base Camp. Um, it, yes, it, it can be. The limiting fact, well, there are a number of different paths up Kili, which different people will take, and some are very quick, and some are slightly slower and more sensible. And most of the reputable companies that will go up there will take you on a on the the path that will give you the best acclimatization profile. And that's what we look for in the clinic is something called your ascent profile. So how how high above sea level do you go every day, particularly above 3000 meters? 
And that's yeah. what I'm looking at when I see patients. I ask them to come in with their diary of how high they're going and how high they plan to go every day to get to that point. Now, the issue you have in on Killy is that for every day that you're on the mountain, you're paying park fees. And they're quite expensive. They're, I think about $150, maybe more. I don't know. But they are... So, so the shorter, the, the less time you spend going up that mountain, the less money you have to, to pay out. And so people are very, very keen to bash up and down the mountain so that they can save themselves. So if, you, if you kind of knock two days off your ascent profile, you've saved yourself $300. That's a lot of money for your trip. But people approach it in the same way that they might be running up Snowden or Penivan, which you can't do. You cannot approach uh, these mountains in that way physiologically it just doesn't work and that's before you throw in other factors such as weather uh, and uh, air pressure etc so one of the biggest factors we're looking at is their acclimatization profile particularly with the common peaks like Everest Base Camp or uh, or Kili. And I guess if we look at the two two different profiles of Ewan's trip that I that that he did, you started off at Jiri, didn't you, Ewan? So you were you were you were probably a much slower acclimatization than for me. Whereas I flew into Lukla, which is already Lukla is already two thousand eight hundred meters. So I went into there and was pretty much ascending straight away. Whereas you were probably taking a much slower um, acclimatization period because you were ascending so much slower than I was. Yeah, so, that's right. I've been um, I've been working in Dosa, which is only about I think sixteen hundred meters, um, and then a kind of quite a gradual walk up towards Lukla and then up to base camp. So we had no issues other than my kind of uh, stupidity there. Um, <laughs> James, yeah, is that? I mean, they say that um, fitness is not a, a risk factor per se, um, but I think that's probably because people. Are who are fitter probably should be able to benefit if they're pacing themselves well, but in fact they end up not pacing themselves well, and this is why fitness is not a risk factor for altitude sickness. Is that right? Yeah. So fit, it, there's no correlation between really fitness and acute mountain sickness. So if you suddenly took somebody who's fit and somebody who's unfit and dropped them at the same height, there isn't. You're not going to see a sudden improvement with the, the guy who's fit compared to the guy who's not fit or the girl. So, um, but what you tend to find is that fit people often will push themselves harder. So one of the things that we discuss, and you pick this up when you're in your consultations with your patients, is people say, I've been out training, I've been walking on Dartmoor, I've been knocking off the miles, I've been running up and down staircases, um, I've gone and climbed Snowden a couple of times. Um, and they approach it in a way that they, they think they can walk at the same pace on the hill uh, in the UK as they can getting up from Lukla or from Annapurna Base, going to Annapurna Base Camp or any of these great treks. And my, uh, my continual advice to these patients is, no, you can't walk at that pace. You And when you get to altitude, you will find your own rhythm and pace. And you have to accept that some people actually are very well, just appear to acclimatise quite well, and others don't. And there, there may be a genetic factor that they're looking at um, at the moment with this, but we just don't really know in any great depth and so my advice to a lot of my uh, patients who come through is you need to learn go away and learn to walk slowly which for a lot of people I mean we're looking at a self-selecting population who want to go up a mountain so by definition they want to achieve something they want to push themselves and, and they're generally fit um, people who are not interested in doing exercise on holiday end up on a beach somewhere uh, drinking cocktails these guys 
and girls want to go up a mountain so they're fit on the whole um and, unless it's a charity trip and we can talk about that in a minute because i think they're a very specific risk group that are worth mentioning um, but people need to learn to walk slowly and one i did a trip once to annapurna annapurna base camp with a group of young people a group of students and they were um first year a level students really really fit the rum rings around me most of the time um and what we did notice is that the, the boys get a little bit competitive within this group and they're always running on they wanted to be the first to the hut the first to find the best kind of bed in the hut etc they want the best view and so they're banging on and, and running up these steps of which there are billions in places like nepal they get to the village they start messing around um, and then they've got pounding headaches and they're feeling sick whereas the guys who are not that interested not that competitive who just sit at the back plod along at their own pace um, get there and they're fine and they, they just accept that they're gonna walk slowly so my advice to anyone traveling in these environments is right learn to walk slowly walk at a pace where you can have a conversation if you're walking at a pace where you can't converse with the person next to you then you're walk, walking too quickly and if you're working with a group i think one of the best uh, pieces of advice as a team leader so as an expedition medic or as an expedition leader is we you often put uh as it, as historically people have said well you you walk at the pace of the slowest person so you put the pace you put the slowest person at the front um but i find that demoralizing because the, the fat unfit student knows why they've been stuck at the front mm. because they're unfit and they want them to, to slow everyone else up and that's not helpful it demoralizes them and it frustrates everyone else at the back and it and it causes team um uh, dynamics to change dramatically so what we end up doing is saying actually the fast ones can go at the front but there's going to be a porter a, a, or a guide who's going to go at the very front and you say to these guys you can walk as fast as you want providing you don't make yourself sick but you're not allowed to go past the porter or, or that particular guide and you tell the guide you have a meeting with the guide and say right this guide i want you to reach this uh brake stop at this particular time so the guide will walk at a pace, they know this route, they do it all the time, they know they can time themselves, and therefore the students then, they walk really, really quickly, and then they come up against the guide or the porter, and then they walk with the guide. And the, so it slows them up. And the other thing it does is those, then, those students who would then normally walk with their heads down just to achieve the goal, end up walking with one of the local guides and the conversation start up and they have a completely different trip than they would have ever had normally. So they have a really good one-to-one -one experience with the guide because they're forced to walk behind him. Yeah. That yeah. So tips for getting people um, to about you. I mean, you look at any of the big trips that um, people have done in the past with regards to charity treks, like Chris Moyles got to the top of Kilimanjaro. Um, for, I think it was a comic relief trip a few years ago. I mean, he's an overweight smoker. Uh, and I know plenty of other fit people have tried to get up there and failed. So yeah, indeed. And I think uh, Brian blessed what maybe failed about three times to get to Everest. I'm not sure whether he ever did or not. Mm. Um, no, he did. I mean, Brian blessed. He got very high, very high. But I don't think he got to the top. I'm pretty sure he didn't. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to come back in a second to uh, diamox or acetazolamide. Yep. Um, I want to also come back to the uh, charity groups, as you mentioned. In the meantime, Neil, um, I've got up on the screen here. I think you were looking earlier at uh, the what NASNAC advice uh, that they give um, for uh, altitude. And then we'll uh, 
We'll check with uh, the expert if that's actually the correct advice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so the way that NAFMAC uh, categorise it is they call it, put, put it into three categories, low risk, moderate and high risk. Um, and so we've got on the screen here what they class as low risk. And what they deem for low risk is that in that situation, medication shouldn't be necessary. So that they, they are people with no history of previous altitude illness and are not ascending above 2,800 metres. So a lot of places won't um, be above that. So, for example, Machu Picchu, it's 2000, about 2,400 metres. Um, individuals taking longer than two days to arrive at 2,500, 300 with subsequent increases, sleeping elevation less than 500 metres per day. So basically, that's exactly what James is saying. It's very slow acclimatisation to this area, which is it is high altitude, but it's not it's not deemed as um, very high altitude or extreme or the death zone as such. So those are the groups where it says actually medication shouldn't necessarily be necessary. Then it comes on to the moderate and severe groups, um, so it's severe, um, so high risk groups, sorry, where they would say that in these groups, this is where medication should be considered. So looking at people that have got a history of um, acute uh, mountain sickness, those that are ascending to a higher altitude, um, particularly rapidly, uh, people that um, have got any history of haste or hape. So haste is high altitude cerebral edema, hape is high altitude pulmonary edema. Uh, so any history of that, any individuals that are really going particularly significantly high and are ascending very, very quickly um, in those time. And we briefly touched on Kilimanjaro there is, is given as an example, because obviously James mentioned there are routes up Kilimanjaro where you can ascend quickly. And it was really interesting because I didn't realize that the, the reasons behind that was around the cost, cost factor. Um, and although that's a cost factor for Kilimanjaro, I imagine that's a cost factor across all different treks, not necessarily put on put in place by the the being on the mountain, but actually if you're going with an, a, a porter or an organisation that's taking you up, they will probably have set timeframes for that trip. Um, similar to mine, we were planning to do ours in 15 days. It actually took 17 days, but that, that was always factored in. So it was always 15 days, but we'll, we'll allow for two days extra whereas a lot of organizations may not have that in there and therefore there might be extra costs to that as well so yeah so this is um, available on the nathnet website these are their sort of groups so the amber and the red ones are the ones where they're they're saying that medication should be should be considered which i think brings us nicely on to the diamox question really doesn't it yeah so james are those the groups of people that you find yourself giving diamox to uh yes um, we, it's, oh, it's, we're very careful. We've got a, a good pro forma in the clinic on who does and doesn't get Dimox. It's based around these. These guidelines uh, are really taken from the Wilderness Medical Society guidelines on the prevention of acute mountain sickness. And you can actually get those for free if you just type in uh, Wilderness Medical Society and um, altitude illness. You, you can download the PDF, which is a very, very useful document. And it, and it gives you the evidence behind the different medications that we use and the acclimatization uh, stages that people should go through. Uh, and that, that document's been around for a while and it was last updated in 2019, so it's, it's very up to date. Uh, we tend to look, there are certain trips that we would say, actually, you don't really need Diamox. And, and the, the difficulty with, with these guidelines is it's all done in 500 meter increments. And, but we know that the mountains that you go and visit and the, and the places that you visit overseas are not 
stuck in 500 meter increments. And some of the tracks that you can do won't have huts or accommodation at these 500 meter or 1000 meter increments. And it's just not possible. So some of the routes you can go up Killy, for instance, you can adapt in and out. But some of the days that you'll go up there, and some of the routes, there's no way that you can keep 500 meters between the previous night's accommodation, 500 meters of ascent, and the next night's accommodation. So you need to look very, very carefully. And then you've got other places. So people flying into Cusco, for instance, which is on in itself on a hill and varies in altitude, um, they go straight from sea level pretty much, straight up to three, three and a half thousand meters it can be. So just to let everyone remind everyone, obviously most of our audience will know this. Cusco is where you fly into Peru to do the Machu Picchu, the Inca Trail, and it's where the you kind of start, get the bus, and then you do a four-day walk to the Inca Trail or to various other ruins in that area. Is that that's correct? That's, yeah, that's right. And, and the other thing a lot of people don't realise is that Machu Picchu is also uh, downhill from Cusco. It doesn't feel like it when you walk the trek. There are two 4,000-metre passes, or one 4,000 and one just under 4,000-metre pass on that trek if you're doing the original one. Um, but actually, Machu Picchu sits, hard, uh, sits lower than Cusco, Cusco, although, like I say, it doesn't feel like that when you're doing the trek in any way, shape or form. So we would we would stick to these guidelines. And what we tend to do is we'll have our client in, our patient in, and we would say, show me your ascent profile. Let's look at your experience and altitude as well. Have you had these, any signs and symptoms of acute mountain sickness previously? Do you know, are you sensible? Do you, um, are you sensible? That's difficult to ask for some patients, but I'm, I know as nurses, doctors and pharmacists, we look at our patients and think actually, you're, you are, you know what you're doing, you're, you're listening to my advice and other people you think, you know, I wonder how you get by day in, day out. And so um, you look at them as a, as a whole within the, the realm of this, this advice and think actually Diamox would be quite useful for you. Now, one of the key factors that we have to explain to our patients is that or we need to understand their understanding of Dymox and why they want it. So lots of people, you can buy a Dymox or acetazolamide. Dymox is just the, the, the trade name. Acetazolamide is the, is the drug name. You can buy it over the internet now. You can go onto any website and buy this like you can with a lot of drugs. Um, people seem to have the, the wrong idea about what Dymox is and why it's of use to them. And I mean, I could, do you want it probably be worth explaining maybe a brief summary about how it works or what it does? Would that be helpful? Yeah, yeah. I think it creates a metabolic acidosis, which causes you to try and breathe off more carbon dioxide and therefore breathe faster. Is that something like that? Yeah, so, so basically what happens is, uh, that's a very good kind of a synopsis. When you go to altitude, um, the, the partial pressure of oxygen, all the pressures change. So there's the same amount of oxygen at the top of the mountain as there is at the bottom. In the same way, there's the same amount of water at the bottom of the ocean as there is at the surface. It's just that we don't have, a, at the top of the mountain, you don't have a big column of air weighing down on you. So air has a weight in the same way as when you dive into, into the ocean, the deeper you go, the greater the pressure. The, the volume of water around your body is, uh, remains pretty much the same. You do shrink a little bit, but if you were a, a solid steel ball, that may, that would uh, that would be a, the water wouldn't change. When you um, go to altitude, this is what happens: you go up and you don't have that column of air pushing down on you, uh, the weight of the air. So the, the pressures change, does strange things to your body, and your when you're at sea level, your primary respiratory driver is the amount of carbon dioxide in your blood. When you go to altitude, it, it swaps and it becomes oxygen. 
Um, and because of the changes uh, at night, your body thinks it has more oxygen than it actually does. And so you have you develop above 3000 meters, you start to develop a, a chain stokes pattern of breathing where there are periods during the night where you stop breathing and you, because your body thinks it has more oxygen than it does. And so you have this breathe respiratory pattern that goes in, out, in, out, in, out, and then it tailors off. And then you might have 15, 20 seconds, maybe a bit longer, where you're not breathing. And then all of a sudden, the carbon dioxide levels build up in your blood. And then you take, your, your brain suddenly goes, oh, hold on a minute. You take a deep breath, you start breathing again. And this happens continuously through the night until you acclimatize. And it happens to different people at different rates, depending on their acclimatization profile and the height they go. Now, what Diamox does is exactly as you said, and it changes your, uh, your blood chemistry so that your body thinks that it, it needs more oxygen because it's the acidosis in your body that tells you uh, whether your chemoreceptors pick up whether you need to breathe or not based on the oxygen or, or the carbon dioxide in your blood. And so Diamox tells your body that you need to breathe consistently. So Diamox is, a lot of patients come in and they think Diamox is this wonder drug, it's a steroid, it's a, a performance enhancing drug that will get them to the top of the mountain. Whereas actually what it's doing is it's just helping you breathe at night by telling your body when you're asleep to breathe regularly. So it takes out, when you wake up in the morning without Diamox at altitude, cumulatively you've had a huge number of periods of sleep apnea with no oxygen, plus you've woken up a number of times. So for anybody who has been at altitude, they'll recognize the fact that they don't sleep well at night. A lot of people don't sleep well at night and they wake up regularly. And I'm, I remember having this at, um, in South America, in uh, Puno, in the, in the, where the floating islands are on Lake Titicaca. And that's the worst time I've had, uh, it's about 4,000 meters, and it's the worst I've had acute mountain sickness, uh, where I was waking up in the night, it wasn't even that bad, but you wake up in the night thinking you're having a panic attack or feeling like you can't get your, you can't physically draw breath in. It's a horrible feeling. Um, and you sit up in bed thinking, this is, I'm gonna suffocate. And then eventually it passes and you start breathing again. And it's purely because you've had this period of apnea. So Diamox causes at night, whilst you're asleep, consistent breathing. When you wake up in the morning, you've had a night's worth of oxygen and you've probably woken up a lot less. So that's what Diamox does. So for short trips to altitude, it's of little use unless you're spending lots of time sleeping up there where you're at risk of uh, these um, periods of apnea. But for longer periods of time where you are camping and sleeping on the side of the mountain, that's where it really comes into its own. So trips like Everest Base Camp where you're getting higher and higher and higher and you're sleeping, you're acclimatizing as you go up. But this helps you acclimatize. Diamox helps you acclimatize. And when patients understand that, um, they suddenly look at it in a different way. That it's not just like a malaria tablet to stop malaria, or it's not a steroid to get them at, at the top of the mountain. Does that, does that help? I think that's a great explanation. I think that's just, yeah, I think that was really, really interesting to, to hear that explanation. And interestingly, one of the factors of one of the reasons why you and I never used to administer it was uh, to, in, in our clinic environments was was the the time that it was deemed that it would take to have that discussion that you've gone through um, and uh, to, to, to explain that to, to our travelers and to, to get them to really understand that, that use of it. And because it's a cheap drug, isn't it? It is actually a really quite, a, a cheap drug to have. So the actual cost 
um, to, to go through that with a patient has, was was deemed as too significant. I think it's, it's unless we as clinicians understand, it's the same with any medicine, unless we as clinicians understand this medicine properly and why we're giving it, what the potential pitfalls, um, how we need to explain it to patients, we shouldn't be giving it. It's, it's not rocket science and, and we need to know what we don't know uh, and be able to refer to people who do know what they're talking about. And it's not to say that... Um, you can't learn it. Anyone can learn how to do this. But I think it's super important that as clinicians, you don't just think, ah, we can add this to our service because, it, like you say, it's not a, it, it's, it, it's a, a loss leader in many ways. It's not going to make you loads of money. This is a cheap drug um, and you could give it in the wrong situation. And you also give false reassurance to people who think they can pop these pills and they'll get to the top of the mountain. Yeah. What they won't do. Um, how long do you get for your consultations, James? long as I need. So my own clinic, so most people will start with a half hour consultation. It depends what they're coming in for. Um, so some people will just be returning. They can be very quick as I'm sure with, with anybody. But if you're coming, if you've got a, a group of people who are going, I try and maybe do a, a group consultation if you've got a bunch of people going to one place. So I, I've had people in the clinic for an hour before, which takes up a lot of time. Uh, but you get, a, and this is the thing with travel medicine, you get a real sense of you're actually properly preventing healthcare problems when they're overseas because as you've already pointed out the 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 risk of acute mountain sickness and then high altitude cerebral or, or pulmonary edema is high in many people and and i don't want my patients going overseas thinking they could just knock off kilimanjaro without understanding the significant risks uh, of going up a, a mountain that's uh, many times a year can be unclimbable because of the altitude yeah, now I'm conscious of time, but I just wanted to come on to that in relation to um, the the volunteer school groups and things, because I know um, certainly I always get very nervous and, and, you know, I find it incredible. Sometimes you've got the likes of 15 year olds who are going to do several volunteer projects and a quick nip up Kilimanjaro and the mum and dad are worried about hepatitis B vaccine and they have no concept whatsoever that or about one person a month actually dies and about that kind of limiting time factor that happens on Killy. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the um, that crazy group. So the school groups going up Killy, don't, I, I, I don't get too overly concerned with them because they're normally, the, the teachers have risk assessed the backside of, of the whole trip and they're normally going with a good organisation and their ascent profile is, is pretty tight. Um, the age thing, 15-year-olds up killing, not a problem. Um, they, uh, providing they listen to the advice, they're, they're not really at any greater risk than anyone else other than they can over uh, overextend their, themselves by pushing themselves too hard. And so they often just need to be on a lead. Um, the big risk group for me going to places like Killy um, are charity treks. Massive risk because here you've got a, a group of people who suddenly decide actually they want to um, – they want to climb Killy to raise money for um, a, a good cause, like a cancer charity or something, because they may have had a relative who's died of cancer. Therefore, they're going to climb Killy for Merlin or something like that. And there are a number of different, there's a whole ethical side to that, which I won't go into now because of time. But I, I really question the ethical side of charity treks. And I, I'm hoping that this COVID pandemic will have 
nailed a lot of them. Uh, but the um, the big risk for these groups is they're climbing under different kind of pressure. So these guys, for instance, if you suddenly lose your um, uh, your partner, husband or wife or a close relative or friend and you decide I'm going to raise money, your sponsor to go up this mountain, I'm going to get to the top. And I've heard this so many times, I'm going to leave a photo at the top of the mountain for uh, because um, my partner always wanted to climb this mountain and um, I want to um, leave a photo of them. They, we were going to climb it together and then they died or um, I want to raise money and I've got sponsorship to get to the top of this mountain. They're then pushing themselves to a to get to the top and they will feel if they're not careful I feel like a failure if they don't get up there and all these people have raised money for them to climb this mountain and they get just below the surface and they can't get there and they and so they ignore the signs and symptoms of serious mountain illness and therefore um, they push themselves harder and they get sick uh, and it becomes a much worse situation so that and the charity trips tend to push people up and down quite quickly as well depending on who you go with so I think their motivation and drive to get to the summit is, is very different and needs to be taken. Uh, you need to have a sensible chat with some of some of the clients and expect, uh, explain to them, you may not get to the top. Don't Please don't consider that a failure uh, on your part because of this, um, because you need to understand, don't push yourself just to the top just to leave a photo of your loved one up there, uh, because you'll, you'll end up coming down in a bag if you're not careful. Brilliant. No, thanks, James. I think... We'll leave altitude for a moment. Um, yeah, thank you for that, James. I could have, uh, yeah, could have listened to to your your input on that uh, all day. But it was really, really fascinating, really interesting, and uh, your the explanation of why how Diamox work. I think it was, it was really, really helpful. I hope it was helpful. I, I, I've seen already some of the comments coming up um, that people have found that that really helpful. The the information you've just put on there, yeah, definitely. And for anyone else uh, wishing to join us on one of these, don't feel you have to be as knowledgeable as James. That's, uh, he's an unusual case. Um, for other people who are that knowledgeable, please feel free to join us. Um, so uh, let's talk about, Neil, you want to talk about vaccination services. Yeah, well, I, partly I was interested in what what's going on around the country for vaccination services. Uh, I, I've been keeping up to date with the vaccine updates and what the, the current guidelines are on, on, on what services should be continuing. I, I'm quite interested if there's anyone watching, if you can put some, something in the comments, if you're working in GP, um, if you're working in practice nurse in role, uh, what's your uptake like? compared to what it would normally be because I understand that that is one of the services that that, that GP services should be continuing with but um sorry a question actually I've got for James so uh, I was on the travel health professionals Facebook group earlier so if anyone that's not on the travel health professionals um, Facebook group um, and you're offering travel vaccine please please join in but but one of the nurses there's a practice nurse on there um, posed a really interesting question and um, and I'd be intrigued to see what James's thoughts are on this and see what anyone else's thoughts are um, and the question came from um, a nurse called Andrea Clark, and she said, are people still seeing travel patients in their clinics? I'm a practice nurse and I have a family who are determined to travel to Pakistan in July. And based on her risk assessment, they, they would be recommended some travel vaccines. So I think that there's, the, I guess the question there is, is, as clinicians, where do we stand with this? You know, you know you've got those people going, going to go. Um, where do you stand and, and what, what would you do? Um, James, what, what have you had any of these sort of situations in your yeah. your clinic? As well? We're still seeing travellers, and at the and the interesting. I was just given today some guidance from NHS England um, 
and um, they, they've been very, very clear in their um, uh, documentation in primary care. Uh, they say, and they haven't specified about which vaccinations, but they say deliver as much routine and preventative work as can be provided safely, including vaccinations, immunizations and screening. Um, and they also say screening and immunizations, providers and commissioners must maintain good vaccine uptake and coverage of immunizations. It's also likely that the autumn winter flu immunization program will be substantially expanded this year, subject to a Department of Health decision. So they've not, and I can imagine these guys are really targeting childhood immunizations and vaccinations, but they've not been specific. In they've con yeah, exactly. They've consciously, in that, in that what you've just read, they've consciously yeah. not specified that travel doesn't fall into that, does it? No, they haven't. So, and for me, we're still seeing a very few, but we are seeing travel health patients. And if patients are going to travel, they're going to travel. And my question would be, can I provide a vaccination service to these guys who are going overseas? Can I provide it safely and protect both the traveller and myself and other patients? So you need to work around those whole situations. Now, it, this is very clinic specific. Down here in Devon, we've mercifully escaped a lot of the uh, significant problems with COVID. Um, we really have. So the... Um, uh, Whereas in, I've got a, um, my brother-in-law is a consultant in Birmingham and they've had a massive problem with uh, people traveling, uh, sorry, with, uh, with the COVID problem. And I would be very, very cautious. Now, it, most people say, and we kind of ruled out all travel because they don't say that it's essential, it's not an essential thing. And then people can't travel anyway. Um, right. but, but the guidance it's not has not been as uh, black and white. In Scotland, interestingly, there's been a, the... Uh, private clinics were written to by, I found this out this week, were written to by the Scottish commissioners and said you can't do travel medicine services or you can't do immunisation practice, you have to close. But they weren't, actually, there was ambiguity in the way that they'd written this. Now, I look at this situation and I think, okay, if they're going to go travelling, for me, my question is, is it, can I provide them with a, from where I am, in my personal practice, in my clinic, can I reasonably uh, provide them with the travel health information that they need to go overseas? And let's not just focus on travel immunizations are a good way of getting your patient in to talk about all the things that really happen on it on, on these trips overseas. Um, and there are a number of other issues that I also would question as to why it'd be important to get these in, not least things like FGM. And so travel medicine puts us in a very a wonderful position where we can do a number of assessments that yeah we could blanket bomb and just say no travel's not essential you can't do it but actually it's not as simple as that and I would want to say okay this family's keen to go to Pakistan or wherever it is they were going yes okay one could consider that's not essential but why do they consider it essential to go are they going to go um, are there some issues that I need to know about about this trip that's going overseas am I going to miss something uh, where I've got an opportunity that could safely stop something happening that uh, I feel would be abhorrent, or can I protect this family in a, in a sensible way? It might be that you just need to have a phone conversation with them uh, and offer them some kind of particular advice. They might not need anything. But I wouldn't, I'm very, very cautious just to say, to read a document that says uh, no travel medicine, you can't do travel medicine because it's not essential. Because yeah. for, some, for some people it is. It, it is. 
I agree. I'm I, interesting. I've just noticed uh, the the comment you put up on screen, Ewan. Um, that is my mum that's put that comment up. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm interested. Um, what? Who? Who's made that decision, Mum? In, in your clinical practice, who's made that decision that travel is not essential, and how's that then been rolled out? Um, my mum works as a practice nurse in a GP surgery, and I'd be interested to put that out wider as to because I, I the, I've already seen some of the comments on the Facebook group earlier today from the comment that's put up, and a number of people have said that travel is 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 not being done in their area. So it'd be interesting. I think you've made some really relevant points there, James, about the fact that um, you talk about FGM, but we also have, we, we know that, that ultimately if they're going, we, we sort of do have a duty of care. If we know they're going to go, then we still have got that level of duty of care to explore what other things, issues could be going on. And, you know, we are there as a public health, issue, a public health measure as well in, in our clinics. Um, has anyone else got any other comments at all that they wanted to add? Please add them into our comments list. Uh, this is, they, they could, if they're VFRs, we know they, so people visiting friends and family, we know they have particular risks when they go overseas mm -hmm. that are different to standard travellers uh, yeah. that, are, that are very significant. So we know that the VFRs have a much higher rate of malaria than other standard travellers. So there are real things that we do have to discuss. And, and I think, it, I don't, um, I don't think it's impossible to see these patients as well safely. Yeah. Uh, I'm conscious of time, guys. I don't want to go on much longer than an hour. So um, if anyone wants to post any more questions, um, well, there's going to be an influx now for, <laughs> but obviously, particularly James, um, then you can do that now. Uh, or if Neil, you wanted to ask James anything else, or if anyone else wants to add anything before we consider wrapping up. I'm happy well, to speak as well. I don't mind. I could speak all day on altitude or throw the questions out there. I'm just seeing if anyone's got anyone. Okay, here we go. Um, Tracy Roost. Yeah. Hi, Tracy. Has been asked to get yellow fever in preparation of resuming flights, but unable to obtain it uh, in the southeast. Local surgery will not even give him DTP boosters. As they do not travel anymore, as they don't do travel anymore. It sounds like that they've put this blanket rule of no travel on in that situation. Um, I guess uh, interesting to know where where Tracy Wish's son is based, but I guess um, James, you 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 your clinic you said is doing some some yeah. some services. Um, are you aware of wider travel health services doing um, travel, offering travel? So, from my understanding, most of the certainly the private travel practices, yeah. private travel health practices, have pretty much closed their doors for, yeah. for private travel. So, in this situation, I would say they don't need to be seen. Um, the two couple of things: the GP surgery still are obliged to give a tetanus booster with a new contract, um, so they can't do that. That's just a comp, that's just standard across the UK. Um, and um, the, the GP surgery are incorrect, uh, and I would ping an email to the practice manager and just say, actually, you are obliged under the GP contract at the moment. Um, but, but in terms of yellow fever, um, they don't need a yellow fever until um, 10 days before they fly anyway. And my, my suggestion would be, in this situation, uh, they're not going to get a minimum of 10, 10 days warning before they have to fly. Uh, and my advice would be, look, um, find out from your employer what the minimum time is, minimum advice time is that you're going to get before you are asked to fly. 
um, and then work around that. So I would, if they'd rung me, I'd say, look, I don't think you need this at the moment and I don't think it's worth you coming. It's not safe for you to come in under the current guidelines, um, although they're relaxing. Um, but I would suggest you they wait um, and find out what their lead in time would be. Uh, and then consider vaccinating them nearer that and just push it back a little bit. And I tell them not to be too concerned about that as well. If if needs must, you can also write um, uh, yellow fever exemption certificates in certain situations as well. So often airline companies will want a, they want everyone to have yellow fever because they may end up in a certain situation when we know they're gonna be low risk perhaps. For the, so individual cases with that, I'd be very cautious and say this, at the moment, don't come in, watch and wait. We can get you in uh, at a very short notice when things start opening up again. Um, now, here we go um, from Paul Willoughby, a stop of James' advice. So there you go, James. Instead of talking about it all day, you can spend the rest of the day writing some yeah. guidelines. Yeah. James. Yeah. The Wilderness Medical Society guidelines, all free online. Yeah. yeah. And this this video will be we'll clip it so that it is there is this video is online as well, but we'll also have the uh, the the sound file as well. You and will podcast uh, version. That's the word. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah there is guys. There's now the Health Ed podcast from Health Academy Academy, which you can uh, get at wherever you get your podcasts. They always say that at the end of podcasts. Um, so you can have a look and uh, download that and hit subscribe. doesn't mean you have to pay. It just means you get updates of all our latest episodes. And we will have uh, edited versions and slightly shorter versions than the video versions usually, um, where we just make ourselves sound really intelligent by taking out all the ums and stuff so that we have much more uh, kind of concise information. So... Other than that, um, I think it's probably time to um, think about wrapping up. What's Claire Duker saying? Thanks, Jonas student. Great. Um, okay, so I really want to say thank you very, very, very much to James Moore for being on here. Obviously, it's more if you're in England, but Moore if you're in Scotland. Um, <laughs> it sounds great. Scottish accent. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks very much. Um, this will be available on the, the Health Ed blog on the Health Academy uh, website. We'll have a video version and a podcast version, as we've said. Anything else you want to say, either of you, before we wrap up? No. No, just thanks, thanks again, James, for, 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 your, for taking part today. Really, really helpful. Really, really interesting. Okay. And I will now uh, end the broadcast. So thanks very much, everyone. And we'll see you next time.